welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting Loxdala Saga on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is our 11th episode of our trek through Loxdala Saga. Thanks for staying with us. And it's only February. We're in month 10 of this saga. <laughs> month 10. Uh, you still think we're going to get it done inside a year? Because I, I am confident, which is almost certainly a bad sign. I mean, I wasn't going to say it. No, but it's I was, okay. I know. Yeah. Everyone knows. But here's the exciting thing. We've reached the beginning of the end. Yes, the third act. Yeah, we're in the end game of Luxdala Saga now. Main characters are dying. Matriarchs are playing power games. Farmhouses are under attack. Fatally wounded men are being healed by dreams. Yeah, well, it's all the usual stuff. Some of those are normal, I guess. Yeah, and, and this episode will be about the consequences of the death of Kjartan Olafsson. Yes, but uh, first we have to talk about what happened. Last time on Saga Thing! Still smarting from the theft of his wife's headdress, Kjartan lays siege to the farmhouse at Tunga. He forces Bortley, Gudrun, and the entire Oswaldson clan to remain in the building for three days, exacting an incremental excremental revenge by refusing to let them evacuate the building to evacuate their bowels. Gudrun is furious, but it's her brothers who are the most vocal about seeking revenge. Kjartan's name is Mud with the Oswaldsons, but Bortley won't hear a word said against his former bestie. But that changes when Kjartan interferes with Bortley's attempt to buy a nearby farm. Bortley's a man who'll tolerate a lot in the matter of indoor defecation, but stepping on his business deals and public ambitions is enough to make him put his foot down. Presumably not until they've finished cleaning the floor. You are disgusting! Gudrun lays into her brothers for their lack of movements, shut up, against Kjartan, and Bortley and the three Oswaldsons finally ride out with a total of nine men to ambush Kjartan. A local farmer named Thorkel of Hrothnatinder sees the men converging, but stops anyone from interfering. After an intense battle, Kjartan manages to kill Gudrun's cousin Gudlag, before he and his friend Aun the Black are both slain. Unable to reconcile himself to where their lives have led them, Bortley delivers the killing blow, but then cradles the dying Kjartan in his arms. Aun later revives, despite a terrible abdominal wound, fulfilling a prophetic dream he'd had and earning the nickname Twigbelly. But no such luck for Kjartan, who's buried amid the outpouring of grief from his family and friends. Kjartan's grieving father, Olaf Peacock, forbids violence against his foster son, Bortley, instead sending his sons to kill the two sons of Thor Hotla Chatterbox, who had taken part in the ambush. But Olaf soon dies as well, and his widow Thorgerd Ale's daughter is not content to let her favorite son go unavenged. As Thorgerd and Gudrun begin a war of attrition, can Bortley survive the coming onslaught? Find out, as we bring you Laxdala Saga, chapters 52 to 58. So, as you said, this episode is mostly going to deal with the fallout from last episode, right? The the killing of Kjartan yeah. Olofsson, King Olaf's favorite red shirt. Uh, I don't know that he's a red shirt. He's a very good boy. But uh, I don't know that <laughs> everyone is all that broken up about the loss of Kjartan. I think you'll find that a lot of people are pretty upset about it. This is the same man you described as a childish waste of potential. Is that right? Well, that was in my capacity as an attorney for the prosecution. Although mm-hmm. I, I do believe about 80% of what I said. That's uh, a lot higher than your usual average, I think. <laughs> Hurtful, sir. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, we've come together today not to praise Kjartan, but to bury him. And That's right. possibly to avenge him. Yeah, maybe not in that order, though. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure it is in that order. He's, he's already been buried. <laughs> 
So uh, yes, that's where we left the last episode, right? Mm-hmm. So we are we're just here for the revenge and the interpersonal drama, ah, and of course the supernatural healing of Alan Twigbelly. Mostly revenge, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last episode ended with an attack and a settlement. The Olafsons, Kjartan's brothers, attacked and killed the two sons of Thorhatla Chatterbox, who had been with Botley in the killing of Kjartan. But the rest of the attackers were brought to the law. Guthrin's brothers, the Olafsons, were outlawed, but Botley was only fined. So there's been a settlement of sorts, mm-hmm. but a fine seems a little light for the guy who actually struck the killing blow on Kjartan. Well, I, that is an opinion that Kjartan's mother Thorgerd shares. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kjartan's father Olaf insisted on it because he loved Botley almost as much as he did Kjartan. But Olaf passed away shortly after the settlement was reached, and Thorgerd's the one in charge now. Yeah. And Thorgerd doesn't have the same compunctions about violence against Botley that her husband had. Partly because he's only her nephew by marriage, not by blood. But also partly because she's just less committed to the idea of non-violence than her husband was. <laughs> right. As befits the daughter of Ail Scott Grimson. Yeah, no, her, her attitude is that her son's blood was spilled by a serpent in her family's bosom. So mm-hmm. the idea of letting Botley's actions slide is just antithetical to everything she is. But uh, meanwhile, Botley only killed Kjartan because Gudrun essentially made it a condition of his manhood. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, so Botley now is at the center of a feud between two of the most dominant and aggressive women in the district. Uh, maybe even in the entire saga corpus. Bad Man's news. doomed. Doomed. Part 37. The Daughters of Olaf Peacock. So this episode is going to have a lot of bloodshed, but before the killing, we have a birth. Sometime after the death of Kjartan, Gudrun and Botley moved to the farm at Tunga. Remember that at the end of the last episode, Botley was able to finalize the sale of that farm after Kjartan's death. So they've relocated by a significant distance, but not by any means out of the district. And their new home is soon blessed with a wee baby Viking. His name is Thorlik, named after Botley's father, and he's a promising-looking lad. Delightful. Now, you mentioned killings and revenge. No, 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 don't just blow past young Thorlik. He and his little brother, who'll be coming along soon, are going to be very important people in a few chapters. Yes, but uh, right now, he's a toddler, and among uh, the adults, there's a lot of bad blood in the region. That was a tortured segue, but you got there in the end. It, it was uh, tortured, awkwardly delivered, but we we got it done. Uh, so, uh, you know, someone mentioned revenge, I think. Yeah, revenge was you, was repeatedly. Mentioned. Uh, but yes, the district is full of talk about the killing of Kjartan, and everyone seems pretty well agreed that the other Olafsons and their mother Thorgerd will be looking for vengeance sooner rather than later. Yeah, despite the settlement that was already negotiated by their father. Well, I mean, if he'd wanted to enforce that settlement, he shouldn't have died so quickly. Well, I mean, that's obviously nonsense. He couldn't help it. Uh, Now, the Olafsons are a little less than enthusiastic about striking against Boltley. Not so much because of the settlement, but because he's their cousin and foster brother. Mm. Thorger, though, their mom, she's absolutely looking for revenge. She's, as it says, filled with hatred towards Boltley. Yeah. Um, Now, she's also not related to Boltley by blood, but Boltley is the son of her brother-in-law, Thorlek, so... There's right. And I'd expect Thorgerd to be a driving force here, right? partly because of that lack of consanguinity. Her sons are connected to Botley by blood, right? Which makes their situation less straightforward than hers. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, Jesse Byock kind of ignores that angle. Uh, he reads this as an example of how the difficulties encountered in motivating her sons to seek vengeance against their brother's killer highlights the entanglement of ties and the contrasting spheres of authority separating the genders. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he does, yes, but <laughs> maybe I agree with that. Uh, women, uh, we've seen this before, women interact with the game of honor slightly differently than men do. And at times, it means that their role and responsibility after a killing is actually more clearly delineated than their male relatives. Uh, besides, Thorgard may be getting a bit up there in years, but she's still active, and her favorite son has been killed by a man she helped raise as a foster son. I mean, that's definitely part of it. Uh, there's the grief of a mother for a lost son, but there's also the fury of a strong-willed woman who feels betrayed by someone she trusted. Right, and Thorgard also hasn't lost sight of Gudrun's role in all this. Uh, and then there's the, all the people in the area who helped Botley, or even those who just didn't do anything to stop the killing from happening. Yeah, she's got plenty of enemies to keep track of. She's making a list, and she's checking it twice, and there are a lot of people on it. And there's always room for one more. Mm-hmm. Anyone and anything that amplifies the pain and shame of Kjartan's death is going to elicit a response from Thorgrid right now. Which is why she reacts pretty strongly when a young cousin of hers comes by and asks her for help dealing with a local farmer. Yeah, a, a bit of context here. This cousin isn't just some distant relation. Thorgard used her pool to get this kid a summer job as a house servant for Thorkel of Hapratinder. But the kid's got a workplace complaint. This is, uh, Thorkel is someone people might possibly remember. So many Thorkels. But this specific Thorkel. This yeah. is Thorkel of Hapratinder, as you said. Uh, we mentioned him in the newsreel. He's the landowner who saw Butley and the Oswissons on their way to attack Kjartan and stopped his worker from warning Kjartan. Yeah. To be clear, he didn't do that out of love for Boltley or the Olsvifsons. No, no. He didn't really care what happened. You see, Thorkel is a minor person in the area, and the idea of both powerful groups in the Laxadol region cutting each other to ribbons, well, that suited him just fine. Right. Uh, but now, this kid comes and reports that Thorkel has been telling jokes about Kjartan's death. Even, <laughs> even acting out the death scene as if Kjartan had died a coward. Uh, Hattar Olofsson, who's Thorgard's oldest remaining son, dismisses this as nonsense and tells his mother to ignore the boy because he's of no consequence. Yeah, but Thorgard allows the boy to stay with her and berates her son. Thorgard's behavior has been nothing but despicable. He knew the men of Lauger were waiting to kill Kjartan, but instead of warning him, Thorgard chose to enjoy himself watching their fight. Now he adds insult to injury, and there's little chance of you boys doing much to get revenge against more powerful men if you can't even rouse yourselves to deal with a miserable swine like Thorkel. Ooh, that's a pretty good insult, actually. Calling the enemy's men and her mm-hmm. son's boys is a nice touch. Yeah. In a way, this news is a godsend for Thorgard. It gets uh-huh, the ball yeah. rolling. No, Thorgard's been looking for someone to unleash vengeance on, and Thorkel has just put himself at the head of the list. Yeah, and, and a very manageable target. Mm-hmm. He's not an especially powerful man. He's not directly connected with the Olsvifsons or Gudrun and Boltley or anyone yeah. powerful. Now, Hotter doesn't reply to his mother's taunting right away, but a few days later, he leads several men to Hoffertinder and seizes Thorkel in his house. Mm-hmm. They drag Thorkel outside and kill him. Uh, and as we're told, his dying behavior was anything but courageous. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hotdorf forbids his men to take anything from the farm, though. 
Well, I mean, it's already risky enough to have killed a man on his own property with questionable justification. Yeah. Adding theft would make this a raid, which would probably meet with much wider condemnation from the district. Yeah, it's a NIMBY thing, right? Not in my backyard. Raiding is all well and good overseas, right? Vikings will be Vikings and all that. But no one wants that sort of thing going on in their neighborhood. No, no, they take that uh, very seriously. Um, So they didn't do that. They just dragged the guy out of his house and killed him in his front yard. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, after all, Hathor's a man of action. He's come a long way from that baby falling out of his crib at Bercy the Dueler's house. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that was a while back. But uh, yeah. yeah, but Hathor, he was fostered by Bercy the Dueler. He's right. also known in Cormac's saga as Blear-Eye Bercy. Blear-Eyed Bercy, yes. But that's in his old age. And Arse Bercy. <laughs> Only by his enemies. Hey, uh, saga fans, guess which one of us chose Bercy as a thingman? I... <laughs> <laughs> The point is uh, that Haltor is is clearly been raised to be a leader among men. Mm-hmm. He's not just spearheading the revenge for his brother. He's monitoring things to make sure that no new trouble gets started. I think Thorgerd is the one spearheading this revenge. That's fair. But in that case, Haltor's the spear. She's the spearhead. Yeah, he's the- merely the shaft. Uh, and speaking of the spearhead, when Haltor returns home, Thorgerd is... Somewhat mollified. She's mm. still not happy, but she feels that, as she puts it, such an action was better than none at all. You know, uh, this is actually pretty harsh when I read it. Mm-hmm. Thorkel just got in the way. Yeah. There wasn't any real reason to actually kill him, right? Haltor's grandfather, Ail Scott the Grimson, would probably just have gouged Thorkel's eye out or vomited in his face or something. <laughs> It might not Hopefully not him. in that order. That'd be awful. a lot of germs in that eye. <laughs> right. Uh, Try cleaning that well, out. I mean, you're right. He's not He's not an obvious target for revenge, right? He never lifted a finger for or against either side. But he's made himself obnoxious by insulting the honor of a dead man. Yes. If that's true. the Olofsons, Charton's brothers, if, if they let this slide, that's just one more stain on their brother's memory and on their own honor. Yeah, there are a lot of ways to weigh honor, but this isn't an especially complicated one. It comes down to, are they going to put up with this or not? And the answer right. is pretty clear. Right. I mean, Carton's death already, I mean, beyond the tragedy of losing their brother and Thorgard's son, the family's reputation took a hit with that. Right. Mm-hmm. The question now is how much damage Carton's death is going to do to the reputations of his living relatives. How much should their enemies be emboldened? Uh, if they tolerate, if the if the Olufsens tolerate insults from a minor figure like Thorkel, what else will they put up with? And someone like Olaf Peacock would probably have argued that it was beneath the family's dignity to even notice the insults of a man like Thorkel, but... Right, you know. yeah, but Olaf's dead now. Mm-hmm. And the family matriarch, i.e. Thorgerd, isn't about to let any insult slide. And it's, obviously, it's also typical of this saga for the motive force behind honor killings to come from women. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Vitor Sigurdsson puts it that throughout this saga, the requirements of feud are expressed through the goading of women, and that that only becomes more pronounced after the killing of Kjartan Olofsson. Well, I mean, like you said, this is Ail's daughter, and it is the daughter that could control Ail, who, mm. whose will was as strong as his, right? Mm-hmm. Gudrun and Baldi should probably have taken that into account when they uh, well, went up against her. There's no sense crying over spilt Kjartan now. So, after the killing of Thorkettle, which, by the way, there are no legal consequences for. Mm-hmm. In fact, Penchak likes to highlight this, William Penchak, uh, likes to highlight this as a feature of this saga. He says, 
Uh, I actually I, I pulled this one for today because I was preparing. Uh, he says, "Very impressive." Yeah. Well, sometimes I prepare, not often, <laughs> but sometimes. He says, uh, "Unlike in most sagas, law stands at the periphery of the deep-seated feuds that motivate men and women in Laxdala saga. The courts, the implication is, mattered little to women, if at all." Which is kind of interesting for this saga because we don't yeah. see them that much. Right. I mean, we've certainly seen that before. Right? Remember the tit-for-tat killings in Yal saga between Bergthora and Halgard Longlegs? Sure. Yeah, we, we covered this a few episodes ago as well. Women have to get inventive when it comes to defending their personal honor and their family's honor because culturally they're cut off from a lot of the more public levers available to men. Right. So they either have to use men as cat's paws to access those levers or else they have to use less direct methods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Thorgerd ordering the killing of a non-entity like Thorkettle of Hafratinder to get her sons to commit to the idea of killing in Kjartan's memory. Exactly. Ev- everyone recognizes that this is just the first rumble of thunder. And it seems like they're all just waiting for the storm. Uh, the Olafsons, led by Hathor, start showing more open hostility toward Butley and his allies. But Butley adopts an Olaf Peacock-esque aversion to conflict, carefully avoiding giving the Olafsons any ammunition to use against him. Yeah, he walks a fine line, actually, because, as we know, Boltley has ambitions to become an important man in the region. He can't seem deferential to the Olafsons, but mm-hmm. he also doesn't want to continue a feud with them. He's in a socially delicate situation, but yeah. he tries to act unconcerned. So we're told, Boltley kept a large number of servants and lived in style, for he did not lack wealth. Yeah, I mean, that's that's also a way of saying that he's surrounding himself with people and staying at home. Yeah, but it uh, sounds better if it sounds like he's throwing a season-long house party, I guess. Yeah, potato tomato. I also want to know where did that money come from, because he didn't seem to have it before. <laughs> I mean, he's never seemed poor. They've, they've hosted uh, large parties. I mean, most John, of, yep. where does Boltley live when he comes home from Norway? Uh, father-in-law's house. Yeah, yeah, he lives at his father-in-law's yep. house. Okay, that's all yep. I want to say. Uh, but Osvif is a very wealthy man. Yeah, fine. Okay. it's I, All I'm saying is that's unusual when a guy in the sagas gets married that he moves into his wife's house. Right, right. Well, the point is, however he's doing it, he's able to avoid conflict for the near term, which, of course, yeah. annoys Thorgard. She wants her sons to build on the momentum of killing Thorkel to start a revenge spree. But mm-hmm. nothing's happening. So it's time for a ruse. A cunning plan. Eh, you judge. Oh, I will. I, I, I will. So one of the Olafsons, Steinthor, has moved to a farm at Donastather with his wife. One day in the winter after Olaf's death, Thorgerth asks Steinthor and Hathor to escort her to a friend, Auth's house. Now, she needs an escort because the path goes near Boltley and Gudrun's farm at Tunga. And on the way to mm-hmm. Auth's farm, Thorgerth stops within sight of Tunga and gazes at the farmhouse. And then she asks her sons, is the name of that farm there? Right, and Hathor knows what his mother is doing. You're hardly asking for an answer you don't know, mother. The farm is called Tunga. Ah, yes, that's right. And who is it that lives there? Again with this. You know the answer only too well, mother. What I know, Hathor, is that Botli lives there. Your brother Slayer lives there. Not a shred of resemblance do you bear to your great ancestors, since you won't make a move to avenge a brother like Kjartan. Never would your grandfather Ail have acted like this, and it grieves me to have such spineless sons. 
you would have made your father better daughters to at least be married off well than serve as sons. I see now that fathering such sons was Olaf's great failing. I'm talking to you, Hattor, since you're supposed to be the leader among your brothers. Hmm. We can turn back now. I made this journey mainly to remind you of what you seem to have forgotten. Damn. Harsh. I, yeah, that accusation of womanly conduct is almost always effective. Uh, I know we talk about this a lot, but it's hard to overstate the degree to which men in the sagas live in an obsessively heteronormative and androcentric yeah. culture. It, it's always particularly effective coming from a female relative. Agreed. Or any woman of the household, yeah. really. Uh, there's probably a very interesting conversation to be had about whether that's more indicative of a baseline misogyny in saga writing or whether it's about women playing to the same heteronormative constructs as the men. Yeah, I'm sure there is, but uh, we have a little momentum going here, so let's table that and leave it to uh, other cultural scholars. Hmm. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's not like we're here to discuss this stuff. So in this culture, whatever it is, Thordred's speech is just a masterclass in stoking male violence. She hits all the talking points. The death of their brother, the fact that his killer is still alive and free, she calls her sons an embarrassment to their ancestors. She invokes Ale Scott Legrimson. She calls them cowards and womanly. She calls them the shame of their father's legacy. And finally, she implies that they're forgetful due to a fear of Butley. Did I leave anything out? Well, uh, she specifically calls out Hot Thor's lack of leadership. Not great. Oh, yes, yes. Just brutal. Uh, but it works. We're told that Hot Thor doesn't have much to say. <laughs> Although he does mutter... You're certainly the last person we would blame, Mother, if any of this did slip our minds. It's a good line. But uh, not having much to say doesn't mean that he's not planning something. Oh, speaking of which, uh, I'm giving Thorgard a cunning plan on this one. It's not the most elaborate plan, but uh, let's go for a long walk and then stop uh, about partway there, a third of the way there, and Mm -hmm. then turn around after Mm -hmm. the reminder. Well, let's see how well it works. Part 38. Avengers Assemble. Okay. Do they say that in, in the movies? Is that something that... Uh, I'm pretty sure they do at one point, but probably not in that tone of voice. Okay. Maybe regulators? Could we do regulators? Regulators! Actually, uh, yeah. You gotta, you gotta say <laughs> let's, let's go mount up. You gotta finish it. Uh, <laughs> I don't have to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hathor plays it cool for a while. For so long, in fact, that his mother gives up on him completely. But her insults have clearly done their work. So the next summer at the Althing, the Olafsons get to work on Operation Avenge Kjartan. Yeah, this next bit is one of the things about saga literature that I really just enjoy as a fan. Yeah. The mustering of a band of men for an attack. Uh, I mean, you know, we can do Avengers references and Young Guns references, but this has really got shades of like an Ocean's Eleven style recruiting montage. And it's, it's often a chance for the author to draw together some narrative threads that were laid out earlier in the saga. Yeah, yeah. Or to connect this story to other sagas, which is a oh, fun thing to yeah. do. Yeah, and the Olafsons, they get their montage started in style. Mm-hmm. They go to the Althing, and they invite their nephew, Barthe Gudmundersen, to come back to Laxadol with them for a visit. Once they're home, they mention casually that they might have had ulterior motives for extending the invitation. Yeah. So... Barthi is the son of the Olafsons' sister, Thurid, uh, the one who was briefly married to Girman Thunder. Yes. Uh, There are some good nicknames in this saga. Girman Thunder. 
Thunder's pretty good, Andy. Yeah. Uh, do you recall offhand who Gearman Thunder is? Of course I do. Yeah. Would you like to share it with the class? Hmm. So you think I'm bluffing? <laughs> yeah. Germund was the original owner of Botley's sword, uh, Legbiter. The, the guy who cursed the sword after Thurid stole it from him. I think we just covered I it in the last episode. I never doubted you. Yeah. That's right. I never doubted you, and the audience will never hear the 10-minute gap where you uh, look that up. So Didn't. We're fine. It never <laughs> happened. Uh, yeah, so uh, Thurid got remarried to a wealthy landowner from the north of Iceland named Gudmund Solmundersen. Mm-hmm. They had a gaggle of kids, of which Barthi is probably the most significant. Now, Gudmund's got cameos in a few other sagas. Uh, he's mm-hmm. an Ale saga, Gretsch saga, Blackstyle saga. He he definitely chooses good stories to be a part of, Gudmund does. Uh, Guthman does. Yeah. Uh, well, his son Barthi is young here. He's about 18. But he's at the start of a promising career as a sower of mayhem. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also turns up in Ale saga and Gretsch saga. But his star turn is in Heidevigas saga. Yes, the, the saga of the slayings on the heath. It's a good name for a saga. One I'm looking forward to. It is. To. And we haven't gotten to that one yet, nope, amazingly. No, nope. uh, And Barthi gets a pretentious name as well. He's uh, he's known as Killer Barthi in that saga. Yeah, so we're going to be getting to know him better when we get to the heath slayings. Can't believe we haven't covered it, but it's coming. All in good time. Uh, for now, Barthi's still a pimply teen, albeit a big strapping one, according mm-hmm. to the author. For a guy who's destined to become known as Killer Barthi, he's surprisingly hesitant to get involved in his uncle's internecine squabbles. It will bring you little credit if you renege on a settlement made with your own kinsmen. Besides, Butley is no easy mark. He always has a large number of men around him, and he himself is the best of fighters. He also benefits from the clever advice of Gudrun and her father, Osviv. This looks like no easy task to me. Now, that's a surprisingly measured and thoughtful response from a guy who will come to be known as Killer Barthi. Yeah, he's wise beyond his years. Yes. Uh, but Hathor makes it clear that they expect his help, and Barthi quickly adds that if he can't convince them to call it off, he'll help them. So he's in. You mm-hmm. son of a bitch. You son of a bitch. <laughs> you son of a bitch. I'm in. The, uh, the Olafsons' next stop is to the Dalir district. They have to travel in some distances here. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're visiting the farm of Thorstein the Black. Thorstein's an old friend of their father, it turns out. Yes, but he's coming out of retirement for one last job. <laughs> That's right. This really <laughs> is starting to sound like an Ocean's Eleven montage. It really is. I blame you. That is fair. Right. So Thorstein tries to discourage the brothers from continuing a feud that he fears will destroy their family. But like Barthi, he agrees to help if he can't stop them. And Thorstein provides another man for the job. His brother-in-law, Helgi Harbenson, happens to be living with them at the time, and he's a sort of package deal with Thorstein. He's big, and he's important, and mm-hmm. now they're getting two for one. But the team isn't complete yet. Of course not. Before they set out, Hotdar sent word to Lambi Hoskelson that they needed him for a big job. Uh, Lambi, if you've been listening to this entire set of episodes, first of all, you're a very patient and kind person, <laughs> and thank you. Just been uh, waiting second, in the wings. <laughs> Second, you might remember that back when Olaf Peacock was a young man, he went off and visited his maternal grandfather, Mirkjartan, in Ireland. That's King Mirkjartan to you. But uh, yes, to finance that trip, Olaf's mother, Melkorka, married Thorbjorn Pockmarked. And while he was in Ireland, his mom gave birth to Thorbjorn's son. Wee baby Lambie. Wee baby Lambie. Uh, but that was a long, long time ago. 
Yeah, I mean, Lombie's a middle-aged man now. He's a grizzled fella. And he's been waiting for a call to come avenge his nephew. Yeah, or a call to just get back in the saga. He's right. sitting there like, hey, I am available if you, you need uh-huh. me. I, I, I'm related. <laughs> but uh, unlike everyone else, he doesn't argue against uh, continuing the brawl in the family. He, he likes the idea. Well, for one thing, it ain't his family. That's just right. Uh, it's not. Lombie and Olaf shared a mother... But Olaf and Botley's father, Thorlik, shared a father. Yeah, Hoskel Dalakolsen. Yep. So Lambi doesn't see Botley as a nephew because he isn't one. He's just the guy who betrayed and killed his nephew. It's actually very refreshingly uncomplicated for this saga. Right. Everyone else is so uh, related. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's nice to have somebody who's sort of out on the side. Yeah. So there's eight of them on the team. The mm-hmm. four surviving Olafsons with... George Clooney as Hotdoor and Brad Pitt as Steinthor, presumably. Okay. Uh, Barthy Barthy Goodmunderson, the young warrior. Matt Damon? Uh, Sure. Uh, I don't know if this is going to keep working, though, because the next guy is Thorsten the Black, the old veteran back for one last job. Come on, man. That's Carl Reiner. Easy. Uh, Carl Reiner, (laughs) the grizzled Viking? (laughs) Sure, yes. Uh, uh, Helgi Hardbinson, the muscle. The Malloy brothers, either one, take your pick, but it works. And Lambie Thornbjarnason, the uncle out for revenge. Mm. You know, I'll go with Elliot Gould on that one. You know, you know this movie better than I expected you would. <laughs> it's surprising. I've only seen it like two times, so. But you know, we I, I think we reference it enough in the uh, in the show that I, I go back and check it every once in a while because I, <laughs> I know it's 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 appropriate for what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, as an English professor, you gotta you gotta know your teams. <laughs> so uh, yeah, two more people are going to join the crew as they're leaving Thorgar's farm. One of them is mm-hmm. Alan Twigbelly. Uh, he's going to fall in step with them first. Mm-hmm. The loyal servant with the magical healing factor. Nice. Yes, I'm going to say this is Matt Damon. Hmm. And right behind him is Thorgar herself. And by the way, I'm pretty sure Thorgar is actually Danny Ocean in this scenario. <laughs> That's probably fair. I actually, I really like that. Uh, and Thorgard is fully ready for blood, presumably with flames coming from her eyes and lightning crackling in her hair. She's going with them. Well, it's really a cool I moment. I mean, not quite. <laughs> she is. I mean, we, we've, she's got to be in her 60s. And her sons are horrified at the idea of her coming with them. This is hardly an errand for a woman. Oh, I'm coming. No one knows better than I do that my sons will likely require some urging yet. Ouch. Yeah, so, yeah. The Olafsons are going to have to avenge their brother with their mother watching. Uh, and it's uh, she, she's probably going to be criticizing them the whole way. That's fun. So that's uh, 10 altogether. Ocean's 10. Ocean's 10. Thorgard's 10. Uh, and they <laughs> they can't waste any more time arguing because they've gotten word that Boltley is away from his farm and all his men. He's up at a shieling in the edge of his property. So it's time to go. Part 39, Saving Money with a Botley Episode. A Botley Episode. Mm-hmm. I assume a community reference. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, if you, wanna, if you want to believe that, I won't disabuse you. Okay. But a reference to a bottle episode. Yes. Essentially. Yes, thank you. Okay. Thank you for spelling so, that one out just, for us. <laughs> it's just so clever. I just oh, yeah. really needed to draw yeah. attention to it. There's a fine line between clever and completely nonsensical. <laughs> well, it's not nonsensical, but it's not good either. So, uh, so Thorgard's ten uh, ride through the night, 
using tree cover and the darkness in uh, in the hope of being undetected, mm-hmm. it's not going to work. Uh, a shepherd spots them and runs to alert Butley. Well, so much for the stealthy approach. Well, I mean, no one's being stealthy because the shepherd takes off running across an open field in full moonlight. A couple of the men chase after him, and Aun is the one to catch him. Uh, he lifts the shepherd up and smashes him to the ground, breaking his spine. Ouch. Yeah. Uh, no one else spots them, so they're able to reach a remote shed where Butley and Guthrin are alone. Yeah. They, you know, that's the moment yeah. That's the moment in the in the movie where they sneak up on a guard and break his neck, yeah. right? Yeah. You have to have that, that moment to demonstrate yeah. these guys are serious. They're serious, and there's it, it raises the stakes. It raises the tension. Right, right. So, so Butley yeah. and Goodwin had had some servants with them at the at the shielding, but Butley has already sent them out to do some early work, and then he went back to bed with Goodwin. Well, we've seen that before. Mm-hmm. Suckers are pretty uniform in their opinion that laying around in bed is a poor behavior, and sometimes it's very costly. Yeah, no, it's a, a early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and alive. Something like that, and, and very true. Uh, so, so since they've got Butley cornered, the attackers don't bother being overly quiet, not that they were before. And Butley hears them coming. He looks outside and immediately insists that Gudrun leave the cabin, since this can only prove to be poor entertainment for you. Gudrun argues, but for once, Butley insists on having his way, and she eventually wow. leaves. He's finally a man. <laughs> um, this is a great moment for Gudrun, actually. She walks straight past the attackers, nonchalantly, mm-hmm. simply ignoring them. And then she begins washing linen in a nearby stream. Yeah, sort of really undermines the tension of the moment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's always it's always disconcerting when you're in the middle of trying to kill a man and somebody starts doing their laundry uh, right next to you. <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, it's not right next. It's, well, you know, it's, it's pretty down, close. Down the hill. Uh, so meanwhile, the men start arguing about the best way to attack because Butley is armed and well defended in the cabin. And he mm-hmm. obviously knows they're there. So there's a bit of dithering from the group. Uh, and then Alan steps forward. Others here may be closer kin to Kjartan, but in none of your minds do the events surrounding his death stand out as clearly as in mine. I remember thinking as I was carried home to Tunga and thought dead, how gladly I would strike out at Butley if I got the chance. I will be the first to enter. Well, no one can really argue with that logic. Go well, on, Butley. No one uh, really Aun. wants to, because they were all hemming and hawing and trying to look busy before Aun spoke. Yeah, but Thorstein the Black does say, Those are courageous words, but it is wiser to be careful than to charge straight in. Butley may be alone, but I doubt he intends to simply stand still and be attacked. You can expect a strong defense. Not only is Botley a strong man, he's also an excellent fighter. He's armed with a sword that never fails him. I mean, unless Thorsten wants to be the first one to go in, maybe he should shut his mouth. <laughs> uh, do you happen to look at the original text for that speech? I mean, I have the uh, I have the Icelandic over here, yeah. Uh, but uh, why? Because I like, the use of the word uh, Hrestimanliga there. Uh, the Kuns translate this as courageous, mm. which is accurate, but I think there's an off connotation in English to the words, those are courageous words, but. Mm. Makes it almost sound mocking. And I, I don't think Thorsten is being snarky. 
the word transliterates as something like possessed of manlike prowess. Now, uh-huh. Thorsten is calling Alan manly. He's calling his words manly. Mm. Still could be snark. I'm not saying it's, yeah. I'm not saying it's snark, but it could be. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of built into the structure of the way that sentence works. I'm saying I don't think it is. So noted. Are we ready for Leroy Jenkins to run in? Sure. Leroy Jenkins? Okay. <laughs> You've never seen Leroy Jenkins? Uh, now, everyone prepares themselves and forms a sort of wedge with Alan at its point. Uh, no one speaks to Botley, and he doesn't say anything to them. Okay. There's a moment of silence, and Alan rushes in. Alan bursts in through the door, holding his shield high to block a blow and maybe try smashing Botley with the shield edge. It's a smart move. Botley is swinging high, but Botley's sword leg biter just cuts right through the shield's edge and on through Alan's head, killing him instantly. No! Not Twig Belly! Well, sorry. I mean, he should not have gone in first, especially kind of <laughs> rushing in the way that he did. Ah, well. Farewell, Alan. We'll we'll see you in the nickname awards, pal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's really kind of a disappointing end. It is. For, for After Alan all that. Twig Belly. After all I mean, that. why... Why let that happen to a named character? Right. Well, and why have this woman come in his dreams and heal him just that he can get himself killed? (laughs) Yeah, right? Ah, well. Uh, So the next man through the door is Lambi Therbjarnason, Kjartan's uncle. And he barrels through even as Alan is falling. Uh, Botley jerks his sword back but lets his own shield sag a bit. And that's enough for Lambi to land a sword blow that hacks into Botley's thigh, injuring him badly. Yeah. So... Um, so Boltley is injured now. Mm-hmm. He's falling backwards, and he slashes out with leg biter and cuts a channel down Lombie's shoulder and arm. Lombie falls to the side out of the fight. Not dead, just out of the fight. Your sword's called leg biter, man. Aim lower. <laughs> He's under some pressure here. You take the shots you're given, you know? Well, it's, it's effective anyway. Uh, we're told mm-hmm. this is a serious enough injury that Lombie never regains full use of his sword arm. Yeah. But he's done his job. Botley is now gruesomely injured with a gaping wound in his leg, and men are still pouring into the shed. Yep. Helgi Harbinson is the third man through, and he charges at Botley with a spear thrust. Now, Botley tries to push forward with his shield, but Helgi's spear impales both the shield and Botley's stomach, shoving Botley up against the wall of the shed. He's bleeding from two terrible wounds now, and he has to use his sword arm to hold his intestines in with his cloak. Ooh, never a good sign. No. Uh, and one after another, the four Olafsons now enter the shed. Now, this is getting to be a very crowded shed. How big are these shielings? I mean, Butley's a wealthy man. No no small sheds for him. Okay. Well, as the brothers fan out and surround him, Butley says, Now is a good time, brothers. It's come a bit closer than you have up to now. I expect my defense is just about over. And as he speaks, Thorgerd enters the room behind her son's. Oh, boy. And stares in hatred at the man who killed her son. Mm -hmm. Do not hesitate, my sons. Finish him off. Put some space between his body and his head. And Steinthor, the second son, hefts the huge axe he has brought with him. And then, without a word, he chops Botley's head off cleanly with a single blow. And that's it. Botley's dead. Oh, he's very dead. Uh, mm-hmm. And there are obvious parallels to Kjartan's death. Right? Boltley is killed by a foster brother, and they attack only after he addresses them directly and invites them to join the fight. 
Structurally, yes. And I'm not sure that's deliberate. But there are also differences, right? The brothers hesitated because of Boltley's strong defensive position, not necessarily because of conflicted feelings. Mm-hmm. And no one is here cradling Boltley or Boltley's head as he dies. <laughs> I mean, I definitely wouldn't be cradling the body. It's kind of yeah, yeah. Uh, gross. It's hard to hard to gaze into his the fading light in his eyes if his <laughs> eyes are several feet away. Right. Uh, yeah, and also Thorgard's actually present, where Guthrun mm-hmm. sent Boltley out, but stayed at home weaving. And we'll, by the way, we'll talk about that when we finally summon Guthrun. For right now, though, Thorgard's on the spot to see the revenge against the traitor Boltley carried out. And, she's, and she could not be more pleased about it. Yes. Yeah. May your hands always serve you so well, she adds. Uh, I expect it will take Guthrun a while to comb out Boltley's bloody locks. Wow. Yeah. And then they all leave the shed. Presumably carrying Alan Twigbelly's body with them. I mean, the guy came back from the dead once. They might as well give it a shot, right? right? Just put him on the table. Uh, we'll see what yeah. happens. You Wait know, around for a while. See what happens. Nah, he's not coming back this time. Well, they don't know that. Well, as they leave the building, Gudrun approaches them and asks if they care to share any news of their encounter. Mm-hmm. So they tell her that Boltley is dead. And then Helgi Hardbinson steps forward and wipes his spear clean on Gudrun's shawl. Mm. Guthrie just looks at him and smiles. Yeah, and Hotdoor, who has been uncomfortable this entire time, is just, he's disgusted by this behavior. Mm-hmm. That was a vile and merciless thing to do. Yeah. And Helgi says, Don't waste your sympathy on that one. Something tells me that my own death lies under the end of that shawl. And Guthrie, by the way, still doesn't react. It's she actually walks moment. with them for a bit. Uh, she makes small talk while they remount their horses and ride away. Mm-hmm. And only then does she turn back to the farm and to her dead husband. Well, this is her third dead husband. It's not like she's new at this game. <laughs> I mean, I think that's that's kind of what most of the attackers think. They they talk about her behavior. They talk about how cold-hearted she seemed to them, almost like she didn't care that Botley was dead. But Hotdor says, I think it wasn't because Botley's killing meant so little to her. She walked with us because she was intent on learning and remembering every person who took part in this attack. Mm-hmm. It's no mistake when people call Guthrun a woman of exceptional character. Besides, she certainly feels the loss deeply. A man like Botley is a great loss, even if we kinsmen were not destined to get along well. It's very ominous. And accurate. Yeah. And that's the end of Botley's tale. News of the attack spreads rather quickly. Gudrun sends for her kinsman, Snorri Goli, for help, and he quickly arrives at Tunga with 60 men. But when he tries to argue for a reconciliation and a settlement, Gudrun says she's not eager to accept a payment for Boltley's killing on behalf of her son, Thorlik. This would be the four-year-old. Yes, but Gudrun is clearly already thinking ahead to using Thorlik as a tool for her revenge. Right, uh, her revenge for the Olafsson's revenge, for Gudrun's revenge... For Kjartan's revenge for Gudrun's spiteful marrying of Botley in revenge for Kjartan leaving Iceland without her. Something like that. That's a nice little trail, but yeah, yes. Yeah, I mean, I've been keeping score. I'm just saying there's there's maybe a reason that Snorri is looking for a way to pump the brakes on this whole feud. But that's not what Gudrun wants to hear right now. Gudrun wants blood. But if Snorri isn't willing to kill on her behalf, she's willing to consider a consolation prize. The best help you can offer, Snorri is to exchange farms with me, so I won't have that Hjartaholt gang in the field next to mine. And Snorri, 
who, if you go back to Ayrbegisaga, mm-hmm. you'll know that he has his own legal problems down there uh, with his neighbors. And so he agrees to switch farms in a year's time. Right. And Guthrun has something else to keep her busy that winter anyway. She gives birth to another son, mm-hmm. who she names Botley after his father, Botley Botlison. From birth, he's a large and good-looking lad, and Gudrun loves him deeply. Yeah, and we've seen this naming convention several times, mm-hmm. the posthumous child being named for his father. Famous example being Snorri Gothi, of course, who mm-hmm. was named Thorgrim Thorgrimson at his birth. Yeah, it's a brief thing here that's pretty subtle. Uh, Gudrun was obviously pregnant when Botley was killed. Sure. It's not terribly subtle. Well, no, <laughs> not that part. My point is that Helgi Harbinson said he believed his death lay be- beneath Gudrun's shawl. Mm-hmm. At the time, it seems like he's talking about Gudrun, but at this point it becomes clear that he probably meant the baby in her womb. Very interesting. I hadn't thought of it like that, but uh, I kind of like it. Yeah, good insight, John. Um, all right, so I'm a we, genius. We finally, I didn't say that. I just said it was a good insight. Okay, let's not get carried away. So uh, we finally get to the end of our foretellings and prophecies. And uh, you want to start us on another one? Have you got room I'm, for another the one? The saga is starting on another one. Ah. Mark it. Helgi has prophesied his own death at the hands of a baby. Well, not while he's a baby. We're going to give him <laughs> some time to grow up first. That's actually a good idea. Uh, Gudrun and her two young sons, Thorlik and Baby Botley, move to Helgefell, where they'll spend the next dozen years or so nursing. First Botley, <laughs> and then a grudge against his father's killers. Mm-hmm. Cute. So, what's happening in Loxodal while Gudrun's away? Part 40. And now, for something completely different. Part 40? Yeah. All right, so the saga is going to move the main storyline forward by a dozen years, but it does it through a fairly deft narrative trick. Do you want to explain this? Well, the idea is that Gudrun moves to Helgafettl to create a a, a kind of a cooling off of the tension in the region. And it seems like it works. Nothing really important connected to the killings of Kjartan and Boltley happens for the next decade. So the author uses a couple of short stories to show that time is passing, but no one has forgotten what happened. Mm Mm-hmm. And the stories seem to be unconnected, but they'll lead us right back into the main story. Well, they even set up the next little bit. Well, they they set up everything we're going to cover in our next episode. Yeah, that's right. So think of this as a preview, mm-hmm. um, a prequel for yes. what's going to happen next, which isn't really a prequel, right. but whatever, it doesn't matter. Right, because we're going to learn about two men who both have their eyes on Gudrun. Yes. So the first event actually happens in Helgafettl, where Gudrun has been getting to know her new neighbors. One of them in particular is a man named Thorgils Hotlison, who, uh, who's been coming around a lot. Yeah, Thorgils is described as a large and haughty man. He's clever at the law, but is thought to be unfair in his dealings. I'm making a note to insert a lawyer joke here later. Good, do that. Uh, Thorgils mm-hmm. also carries a matronymic. His name is Hotlison, and it comes from his mother, Hala Guestdaughter. The explanation given is that his father died young. Uh, but Thorgils is from respectable families on both sides. Uh, his paternal grandfather is Alf of Dollar, and his mother's gr- father is Guest Oldlifson. Guest Oldlifson! People might remember that Guest appeared earlier in this saga as a wise man who interpreted Gudrun's dream of her four husbands for her. Mm-hmm. So we might expect a little foresight from Thorgils. We might. 
we might also be very, very disappointed. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, uh, I don't think he's a... Uh, oh, and uh, Thorgils also has a history of annoying Snorri the Gothi, mm-hmm. who considers him an interfering fellow who likes to make his presence felt. Hmm. Maybe I do like this guy. <laughs> so Thorgils keeps showing up at Gudrun's new farm, offering to help with any little job she might have, like home repairs, murdering her husband's killers for a price, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, he's just doing a little odd job work. Yeah. Now, it's pretty obvious to Gudrun that Thorgils is essentially applying for the vacant job of being her husband, mm-hmm. which... I have to say, speaks very highly of her charms and abilities, given what happened to the first three. Yes, but again, Thorgils may not have inherited Grandpa Guest's wisdom about the future. <laughs> yeah, so Thorgils keeps dropping by, usually with an axe and a map to the Olafson's farm. But <laughs> Gudrun, she keeps aloof from him, not wanting to make any commitments. But she eventually does agree to let Thorgils foster her older son, Thorlik. Yeah, which isn't a terrible idea. Right? Thorlik is an intelligent and capable lad. And he learns the law from Thorgils. And it keeps Thorgils busy for a while, mm-hmm. which is good. But he doesn't let Gudrun forget that he's right there in the wings if she needs a new leading man. Or if she needs some sort of avenger for Boltley. Yeah, not that she's price. in any danger of forgetting. No, but for now, she's content to wait. So, okay. That's our first short tale. Just that, Thorgils is hanging out with Gudrun. That's a very short tale. It's not even a tale, really. There's no beginning, middle, and end. Yeah, it's just... Yeah. Just a tale. <laughs> well, you know, don't blame the messenger. What have you got? Uh, well, something with a little bit more meat on the bone, I hope. Oh, okay. uh, So some time passes, actually about a decade, and then another killing happens in the region. But mm-hmm. it's not related to the main feud. Well, not yet. Not yet. So the man killed is the son of Aeth of Aus, and he was killed by two brothers, Grim and Njal Helgeson. Uh-huh. Now, Njal Helgeson drowns later that same summer, but Grimm is outlawed for the killing. Mm-hmm. But instead of fleeing the island, Grimm chooses to head inland to the mountains, hiding near an up- upland set of small lakes called Fiskvotten. Yes, Fiskvotten, uh, on the heath Twigadagra. This all seems vaguely familiar. Well, these places, should. these names. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Aeth is the son of Skeggy of Midfjord, yep. who we've met a, a few in a few sagas now. And Aeth Skeggison featured heavily in the saga of Thord Menace, I believe. Right. You might remember that that saga was essentially just a series of attempts by Skeggy to use small groups of armed men to attempt to kill Thord Menace. Then put your little hand in mine. There ain't no hill or mountain we can fly. No, 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 no. I think we already did that. Well, uh, Aeth is the son of Skeggy who befriended Thord Menace. He Mm -hmm. was the reason Thord and Skeggy couldn't just kill each other. Aeth kept physically getting in between them to stop them from fighting. John, uh, do you recall, uh, did I take Aeth as Thingman? Uh, I mean, it's hard to remember given that I got Thord Menace. It's uh, it's hard to remember what the the runner-up was. (laughs) I did. Well, it's not so much a runner-up, but you. Good for really you. great choice. The right choice. There you go. But, uh, well, he's, uh, this... he's having a moment in the sun right now. Look, it's, uh, we don't have to rehash this argument. We might as well play I Got You, Babe, again if we're going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, in this specific episode, the killing of Aeth's son by the Helgesons, uh, that did come up in Gretz's saga. Yeah. Uh, Grimm ends up in Outlawry for the killing and finds a place to live not far from Gretter's hideout. That's right. Matter of fact, Grimm was the outlaw who more or less accidentally killed Gretter's friend Halmund. 
Now, in Greta's saga, we saw Hopmans once kill 10 or 11 men single-handed while guarding Greta's back. Very mm-hmm. impressive. So a man who managed to kill him one-on-one, probably a pretty formidable warrior. Yeah, unfortunately, no one told Thorkel Eilfsson that. And Thorkel Eilfsson, remind everyone who that is? Uh, he's the guy who's going to try to avenge Eighth's son. Oh, well, so we're not reminding, we're actually introducing him. Yes, Thorkel oh, right, sorry. Eilfsson. <laughs> yeah, Thorkel <laughs> is also him. a guy we've met in other sagas, but let's just focus on what he does here. John, uh, did I uh, take Thorkel Eilfsson as a thingman? Did you? No, I don't think so. <laughs> You're just trying to claim everybody in the sagas at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when we have guest appearances, I'll just say that was my uh-huh. guy. Uh, he, yeah, he turns up in one of in one or two of the other ones that we've read. Uh, mm-hmm. Thorkel is a relative of Aeth's. He's a ship owner and merchant, and he happens to be visiting Iceland when Aeth's son is killed. He hears about it pretty quickly, and then he decides to do something about well, it. Well, he 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 also hears people muttering that he, Thorkel, should do something about this. Yeah, so he does. He rides to Aeth's farm in the spring and says he wants to borrow Aeth's special dueling sword to go and kill Grim. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Aeth has a very special dueling sword. Mm-hmm. It's called Skofnung. Maybe you remember it? Skofnung. Yes, correct. Uh, remember, his father was Skeggy of Midfjord, who we've seen as the bearer of Skofnung in multiple sagas. Uh, but this story takes place a generation later. And Aeth now carries his father's sword. He now carries Skofnung. The sword with a serpent in its hilt. Maybe. Now, as usual, uh, Skofnung comes with complicated instructions for its use. Uh, Aeth, by the way, first tries to convince Thorkel that it's too dangerous to go after Grimm, which is good advice. But he finally agrees to lend him Skofnung. But, he says, the sword can only be used under certain conditions. The sun must not be allowed to shine on its hilt nor may it be drawn in the presence of women. Any wound it inflicts will not heal unless rubbed with this healing stone which accompanies it. Well, that's new. Well, a lot of that's new. I don't recall Skofnung needing to be hidden from the eyes of women, for the one, one thing. But I assume you mean the healing stone? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the rules for using this sword, they seem to change from one saga to another. Mm-hmm. It seems like the collective storytelling of the island had agreed that Skofnung was a temperamental sword, very cool sword, Mm -hmm. but hadn't quite reached consensus about the best way to keep it happy. Well, yeah. Uh, Well, its new wielder agrees to obey the rules, and off he goes in search of Grimm. And it doesn't take long to find him, because Grimm has left a pretty clear trail all the way up to Fiskvotten. It's almost like he's a very, very strong warrior who doesn't really... Need to worry about hiding or f- f- people mean, finding him or anything. Or or he's just bad at hiding. Eh, whichever, you know. Uh, so Thorkel follows the entirely obvious trail up to a hut by the water where he sees a large man in a fur cloak who's busy fishing. And he cleverly deduces that this is probably Grim Helgeson. Yeah, he's a genius. It's elementary, really. Uh, Thorkel draws Skofnung and swings at Grim from behind. But Grim... Well, Grimm actually is really good at not dying. Mm -hmm. He spots a man-shaped shadow on the water and throws himself sideways. The sword catches him just above the wrist. It's not a deep wound, but it does draw blood. And then Grimm launches himself at Thorkettle. And the two of them wrestle for for a while. And, uh, you know. Uh, Thorkettle tries his best, but, I mean, there's a reason that Grimm wasn't worried about covering his tracks. 
The fight goes on for a few seconds, and we don't get much detail about how it goes, but when it's over, Grimm has Thorkel pinned to the ground. So Thorkel's cunning plan didn't work out exactly as he'd hoped. Who are you? Um, none of your business? Well, things have turned out otherwise than you'd expected, I'm sure. And now it's your life which seems to be in my hands. Well, I won't ask to be spared. But but I will say that things have turned out unluckily for me. <laughs> I really like that line. <laughs> he's under he's literally underneath this big brute of an yep. outlaw <laughs> who he he just missed. Yep. And he says, I'll say things have turned out unluckily for me. <laughs> oh dear. You don't say. Roll the snake eyes on this one. <laughs> well, fortunately, Grimm is not in the killing mood. Mm-hmm. He says, mm, I've caused enough misfortune already in my life. Fate has other things in store for you than a quick death at this meeting of ours. So I'll spare you. You can reward me however you wish. You know, that's a remarkably civil attitude to take towards someone who just tried to kill you. Yes. Well, I mean, Grimm is really very good at fighting. I don't know if he even regards a one not very sneaky guy as a serious attempt on his life. Perhaps it would even be a dishonor to I mean, kill this guy. You know, actually, that might be true. Uh, the text certainly never treats this as a serious confrontation. And everyone was trying to stop Thorkel from trying it. <laughs> I mean, he's no weakling. Right? We'll learn that later. But he's just out of his league here. Now, having said that, he did manage to wound Grimm's wrist. And it's bleeding pretty badly. If only there were some conveniently mentioned healing object that could help. A a stone, perhaps. For example, yes. If a stone could heal wounds from this specific sword and we could tap it on the wound, that would be great. But you'd have to have the man there who's carrying the the stone. Uh, (laughs) Thorkel does heal Grimm's wrist with Skofnung's healing stone. And the next day, the two of them ride out to Selingstunga. They're best friends now. Well, yeah. Uh, it had to be an awkward <laughs> night camping out, though. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, so when they when they get to Selangstunga, uh, Snorri Gothi is now living there in Gudrun's old house. That's right. Uh, things are moving pretty fast at this point, and I want to defend us against any accusations that we're rushing through this part to get back to the main narrative. Right. The, the saga is rushing through this part. Absolutely. Uh, we're just the messengers. Uh so Thorkel is, uh, well, he's obviously a little embarrassed to be visiting Snorri with the man he set out to kill. Which is understandable, but Snorri's actually pleased when this happens. He says that Grimm strikes him as a lucky man. Mm-hmm. So he advises Thorkel to put aside his grudge and become Grimm's friend. Which is a nice way of saying, you know, consider yourself fortunate to be alive and leave well enough alone, you dolt. Pretty much. Now, Thorkel and uh, Grimm now plan a trip to Norway... But before they leave, Snorri talks with Thorkettle about his future. He says, If you take my advice, my friend. Oh, now. This, <laughs> this character assassination can continue. <laughs> no, nah, he says, If you take my advice, my friend, you will leave off with traveling and settling down. Get married. Become a leader of men in Iceland, as one would expect from a man of your family. Well, you've always given me good advice up till now. I... I suppose you've given some thought to which woman I should propose to. God, this guy is, he really is adult. Not a smart man. 
It's like, well, I don't know who you got some got, got a handful of uh, good qualities, but none of them involve his brains. <laughs> I think it's mostly what's in his pocket. And I'm talking about money. Money, money. That's what I'm talking about. You know, as it happens. Oh, sorry. Oh, this, this I is, actually, this must be yeah, a yeah. Yeah, quotation mark yeah. there. That story says, you know, as it happens, I was thinking you should propose to the woman who is the finest possible match. Of course, that is Gudrun Oswald's daughter. Uh, look, I'm not saying she isn't a worthy woman, but her single-mindedness and her obsessive nature worries me a bit. <laughs> She's presumably still intent on seeking revenge for Botley, and it seems well, he to knows me her. that Thorgils Hotlison is involving himself there and making himself agreeable to her desires. Yeah. I'm not sure he'd like me sticking my nose in. Not that I don't find the prospect of marrying Goodman appealing. Tell you what. You go overseas as you plan, and we'll see if there are any developments in the matter of Botley's revenge. And I'll see to it as well that you won't be in any danger from Thorgils. Now, is that really as sneaky and ominous as you're making it sound? Uh, yes. Snorri is doing everything except twirling a thin black mustache here. He is in full evil genius mode. Ah, so you admit he is a genius. An evil one, yes. I think that's been very well established. Uh, but uh, I think this is also a really good stopping point for us. Mm -hmm. A nice teaser, if you will, for what's coming up in the next episode. What exactly is Snorri's plan? Mm -hmm. So Thorkel and Grimm are going to sail to Norway where they separate as friends. And Grimm heads off to live a new life in Norway. While Thorkettle spends a year there and enjoys his time as a well-regarded man about town. Fjord? A man about Fjord. Also, the saga very carefully does not mention anything about Thorkell bringing the sword Skolfnung back to Aeth. No. In fact, the narrator specifically says that Thorkell did not stop at Aeth's farm before riding to Snorri Gothi, so mm -hmm. <laughs> it looks like Skolfnung's got another new owner. Yeah, we uh, we haven't heard the last of what we can call Skolfnung's Thauter in the saga, but for the moment, it's off on a vacation in Norway. Uh, for Skolfnung. Back in Iceland, our episode ends at Helgafell. As the sun sets behind her farm, we see one last glimpse of Gudrun Oswald's daughter looking out from her front door as Snorri comes riding over the dale, presumably twirling that mustache as he comes. And just as we fade to black, Gudrun leans against the doorframe and smiles grimly. Excellent, excellent. Very cinematic. So before we wrap things up here, we have a summons to conduct. We do. And given the precedent of our last episode, I'm sure you won't be shocked to hear me say... Summons to the court! Botley Thorlikson! Yes. Now, this is where I assumed we were heading, which is... Of course. Know, ...what we talked yeah, about before. Yeah, we need to talk about Botley. Yeah. Uh, so, who's going first? Well, I think, you know, we should switch jobs. Um, okay. I, I did the Carton is good. You did Carton is bad last time. So mm -hmm. why don't you try building up a case for Boldly and then I'll have fun knocking it down. All right. Sounds a little mean spirited when you put it like that, but okay. All in good fun. That's fine. I'm, I'm just following your lead oh, from no, your character fine. assassination of Carton last time. I think you mispronounced assessment there, but fine. All right. <laughs> uh, that's, let's then, that's okay. then let me let me undertake this. So it's my job to make a case for the man who spends most of his life in the shadows. 
Uh, Boltley is, from the first time we meet him, a character who keeps the narrative perspective at a distance. Uh, Kjartan's intro was full of praise for him and for his excellent traits as a person. I made the argument last time that those were more potential traits than evident ones, but still. We see Kjartan from the inside out. Right? Uh, public opinion and narrative knowledge come together for a cohesive character profile. But Boltley is never subject to that kind of attention. Instead, the focus is on his externals only. He is a large man. Uh, and next to Kjartan, the best at skills and other accomplishments. He was strong, handsome, and an excellent fighter, with good manners and a fondness for fine clothes. Now, Jonas Christensen sneers a bit at Butley, calls him a mere, quote, chivalric show, and uh, <laughs> contrasts his fine clothes with Kjartan's personal qualities. But I think that misses an important point. Butley is a quiet man. He's an introvert less easily knowable and less easily led than his outgoing and reckless foster brother. Boltley stays quiet when he can, and speaks little at any time. In the social world of the sagas, he can come off as a lesser shadow to Kjartan, but when he does speak, he shows that he has the better sense and the more thoughtful nature of the two. When Kjartan chooses to pick a fight with a swimming Norwegian, Boltley declines to get involved. When that swimmer turns out to be King Olaf, it isn't long before Kjartan's pricked manhood leads him to plan a hall-burning. Boltley again speaks up to caution against the act, correctly judging that it is a terrible and suicidal idea. And throughout the feud between his wife and his former best friend, Boltley is always looking for a path to peace and amity. It is Boltley who risks a loss of face when he sees Kjartan back in Iceland for the first time, and greets him with a brotherly kiss. Boltley, who stands against Gudrun's powerful personality and incandescent anger. There's a reason why Gudrun has to rely on her brother to steal swords and headdresses from Kjartan and Hrefna. Boltley will have no part in her provocations, and tries to placate Kjartan repeatedly. We've actually seen this dynamic before, a wife intent on starting a feud, and a husband trying to preserve a friendship with the same man. In Njal's saga, the feud was avoided because both Njal and Gunnar were high-minded enough to remain united in friendship despite the actions of their wives. Boltley attempts that same solution. He extends the olive branch on multiple occasions, but he's met with petulant escalations and petty revenges as Kjartan fails to uphold the contract of their bond as brothers and friends. Even then, he refuses to listen to any bad-mouthing of his estranged foster brother, again behaving very much like Gunnar, who would not allow any evil words about Njal in his house. And when uh, Botley's wife and in-laws and the actions of Kjartan finally force Botley to act against his brother, the facade of quiet reserve finally breaks, and we watch as Botley weeps over Kjartan's dying body. I know that the main knock on Botley is going to be his marriage to Gudrun under apparently false pretenses. I know. And I don't think the saga suggests that he's totally blameless. But let's look at it. He tells Gudrun three things. That he left Kjartan in Norway. That Kjartan has found a new love in the Princess Ingebjörg. And that Kjartan sent no message for Gudrun. But as we, as we discussed in that episode, all of that is true. 
Baldley returns from Norway in the full belief that Kjartan is semi-permanently a part of Olaf's household, and that Kjartan and the king's sister are in a relationship. And they are! We're not told how far that relationship has gone, but they're clearly not just friends. So much so that Olaf implies he'd be very happy to have Kjartan as a brother-in-law. What Baltly told Gudrun is just simple truth as Baltly understood it. It may not be his finest moment, but I think it's an excusable one, especially for a man in love. Baltly doesn't show how he feels, but he feels deeply. That's my assessment. Baltly is a quiet man who tries to avoid the spotlight and is often overshadowed by bigger and louder personalities around him. But bigger and louder don't mean better. In the end, Baltly is a man more sinned against than sinning. He's far from perfect, but he tries to be better than his circumstances, which is more than we can say about either of the two people who create those circumstances. I yield the floor. Mm-hmm. Your Honor, I would like that stricken from the record. That was all <laughs> speculation. <laughs> uh, that seems a fair assessment, you know. But uh, So we're done here then? Yeah. No. No. We're not done here. Ladies, gentlemen of the jury. Oh boy. You've listened to some tall tales today from oh, my esteemed colleague from Massachusetts. I hope you were entertained. I, I really do. He's a good storyteller. That's what he does. He's an English <clears> professor. Can't help himself. But me, well, I'm I'm not interested in stories, you see. Oh, I'm, boy. I, I'm interested in one thing. That's the truth. <coughs> There's truth in stories. I agree. But I'm more interested in facts. And there's a whole lot of truth in facts. Now, I don't intend to go back over every little detail in the yarns my colleague has spun for you. I don't think you need that. But you do have an important question before you. And that question is this. Who is Boltley Thorlikson? Really, who is Boltley? A few weeks back, my colleague wondered what Kjartan ever did. I could ask, who is Kjartan? And the answer's easy. The man's introduced with one of the longest descriptions of a person in the sagas. He's the ideal, the man who wrestled King Olaf and won. He was a man who acted, a man who felt, a man who loved, a man who threw his weapons down rather than fight his brother. He was a man of conviction. Sorry, remind me about who it is you're evaluating here. <clears throat> I thought uh, I had the floor. <laughs> so you ask me who Kjartan is. Well, I say he was a good man whose life was cut short by those who just couldn't stand to live in his shadow. Mm-hmm. So who is Boltley Thorlikson? He's the runner-up. The one who walks behind. You said he's a quiet man. Well, he's worse than that. He is a passive man in a world that demands action. Who is he when he's at home? He's known as Kjartan's foster brother. Kjartan isn't known as Boltley's foster brother. But that's not a crime, it's just who he is. <laughs> and when they're in Norway, what does Boltley do when Kjartan challenges him to swim against the best swimmer in the river? Boltley says, I doubt that I'm good enough. If I recall... This disappoints Kjartan. It's understandable. He says, what's become of your sporting spirit? It's a good question. And when they're discussing King Olaf's threats, it was Kjartan who said they should act. Yes, boldly, rashly, but an action. This is what heroes do. It was boldly who said it wasn't worth trying. The king's too well guarded. 
caution, passivity. And what exactly did Boatley do while he was in Norway? What reputation did he bring home with him to Iceland? His passivity doesn't end there. After stealing Gudrun from his brother, he moves in with her family, as I said earlier in the episode. He doesn't have any property. And despite being raised in the loving home of Olaf Peacock, Boltley has very little to show for his upbringing, for his friendship with Kjartan, for his time in Norway. He doesn't seem to have anything until, miraculously after killing Kjartan, he suddenly has money and enough space for men to hang out with him. Well... When the trouble between Gudrun and Kjartan begins, what does Boatley do to calm things down? To stop Gudrun and her brothers from antagonizing Kjartan? Stop them stealing from him and his lovely wife? Instead, he just sits there quietly. And when the plot to ambush Kjartan is set, what does he do to save his brother? Nothing. No, he does worse than nothing. He joins in. Finally, the great Boatley acts. He claims his manhood. But how? By drawing his sword and killing his brother. An act that he immediately regrets. Boltley doesn't act very often, John, but when he does, it has a destructive effect on everyone around him. Consider that his first act in the saga, his first independent act in the text, is to destroy the relationship of Guthrun and Kjartan. It's a terrible act of betrayal. Not only does he undercut Kjartan, he robs Gudrun of her independence, her freedom to choose for herself by asserting a masculine authority, using her father to apply the pressure needed to get her to marry him. A marriage that's founded on deception and coercion, not love and mutual respect, is the result. And this destructive act sets in motion more chaos, more animosity, and ill will that will disrupt the peace of this region and claim the lives of so many. Let's consider the repercussions of this betrayal and the ensuing feud. Gudrun is unhappy. Botli is unhappy. Gutlaug is dead. Kjartan is dead. The sons of Thorhatla Chatterbox are dead. Gudrun's brothers are exiled. Botli's children are doomed to live their lives without a father. Even Hrepna, Kjartan's beloved wife, dies of a broken heart. And then in the attack on Botli, Lambi's arm is irreparably damaged. Alan Twigbelly is killed. And Botli himself is killed. And there are more deaths to come, John. So why, I ask you, why did this happen? Because of Boltley. Let's not forget Kjartan's final words to his foster brother. You are now, my kinsman, certainly going to do a deed of a Neidinger. A Neidinger indeed. A perfect description for Boltley. A villain. A wretch. A shameful man. And let's not forget that he pooped in his own house. (laughs) He pooped in his own house. I rest my case. I mean, I don't see why we would need to discuss. I mean, it's all right there. If the floor is not neat, you must acquit. (laughs) Uh, Andy, so your argument essentially comes down to uh, it was Botley's job to stop Kjartan from destroying his own life. And it was Botley's job to lie to cover for Kjartan when Kjartan was busy dallying with a princess in Norway. I'm not sure that's what I said at all. And not sending letters back home to his would-be fiancé, correct? Uh, No. Uh, If we're making the argument argument that it is Botley who makes a claim on Gudrun that he has no right to, 
Uh, I would question your claim that Kjartan has any claim on Gudrun at all or that they have a relationship at all, given that Gudrun explicitly said that she would not wait for him when mm-hmm. he left for Norway. John, I have a quick, very important question. Yeah. Um, are we dropping our facades of, of uh, the, the characters we were just playing for this discussion? Yeah, or are we, we can continue like. to play these roles. We can if you okay. like. I think it's better to drop that yeah, because we fine. both presented that's presented fine. our cases. Yeah. Um, and rather than playing out a ridiculous argument, <laughs> I think we can talk seriously about about all of this. Fair enough. Um, yeah, um, I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, in terms of the the expectations of Gudrun and Kjartan, that is a fraught situation. Mm. It, I think you're like you just said. It's very clear that when Kjartan departs from Gudrun, things are not well. And well, she does and not that, agree. She does not agree to wait right, for him. Right. He asks her to, and she says, screw you. She didn't right. say that, but that's the impl- implication. Well, and the real condemnation of Carton there is that Carton still goes away thinking that they have an agreement because he's Carton, <laughs> right. essentially. How right? could that's, she not want me? Really, it's, it's what it comes down but, to. But I guess a good question is, is he wrong? Does she still want him? Yes. Of course. Does. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so he's not wrong. Right. But at the same and, time... She, you know, as we've, I think we said at the time, and I think we will talk about this again when we get to uh, judging Gudrun. Um, mm-hmm. She is, you know, like any number of other figures in the sagas, she is more concerned about maintaining her pride, even in her own eyes, than yeah. she's with pursuing her own happiness. Yeah, and I, I think that you know the the problem with Boltley, because I, I, I think my my argument stands. He mm-hmm. is. He's too passive. He he fails to act too frequently. Um, he doesn't make a name for himself. He uh, manipulates, you know, Gudrun's father in order to force a marriage that she doesn't want. Um, he miss. I, I would say, I think it's fair to say he misrepresents Kjartan to Gudrun for his own need. Maybe I could see that there's a you know, there's room there's wiggle mm-hmm. room there, but that's what he's counting on is that he he wasn't explicitly told. That that Kjartan's coming home. He wasn't explicitly right. told anything for Gudrun, so he just fills in the the blanks for himself. Well, mm-hmm. you know, it's a it's a gross misjudgment. It's a gross betrayal of his friend. You know, uh, and that, yes, I, I will you give know. you that it is not. He does not come off at his best at that moment. I think if we're going to make a case for Botley, and that was my job, uh, we find it in those months leading up to the final confrontation. Right. Mm. Again, when Kjartan and Gudrun are clearly in full-on destruct mode, they yeah. are just trying to destroy each other's lives and make each other as miserable as possible, even though it is making they're making themselves miserable in the process. And mm-hmm. Baltly is the one trying desperately to keep this from coming to a head. Yeah. Um, that I mean, to the point where he's really he's sucking up a lot of shame. Uh, in order to not have see, to confront Kjartan that. directly. He doesn't come I, off, I, I agree, he doesn't come off well in those in that return to Iceland and in his his justification for marrying Gudrun. I think when, if we're making a case for Botley, it has to come in those months when he's trying to keep his wife and his best friend from creating a destructive feud. Yeah, but I think it's, it's still, for me, it's kind of a thin case because when you start thinking about, well, what could he have done there, there are examples of other characters in the sagas, and I think Gudrun, or not Gudrun, uh, Gunnar and and um, Holgerth. Gunnar does his best to at least intercede mm-hmm. with Holgerth mm-hmm. and assert his own authority in that relationship. 
it doesn't always work out well for him, but he he attempts to, he acts, right? Mm-hmm. The failure, as I said, of, of Boltley is, is just a lack of engagement with the world around him. He's content to sit there. When he could have stopped the brothers, he could have stepped in and tried to redirect Gudrun mm-hmm. in some ways. But he simply doesn't to the point that it escalates. And next thing you know, they're all pooping in their own house. Well, I will say... <laughs> You're going to keep going back to that. Uh, I will say, I think we agreed at the time that Butley, when he denies the theft, he sincerely doesn't know about it. That mm. Gudrun has done this, has worked around him because she can't get him to turn on Kjartan. And mm. so she's using her brothers to, uh, to work an end around. And when he says, look, nobody in this house would steal from you, he believes that to be true. That, I think, if if you're going to make a case for Boltley, I think that would be the thing that holds it together in terms of his lack of action. If he didn't know right. that they were plotting these these tricks on Kjartan, um, then he couldn't have, right. have acted. But and, certainly he's hearing the rumblings and the mumblings. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I do and that's think... And that's where he needs to step in. I do think that part of the problem is, you know, that if he wants to play that role of Gunnar in this in this situation, he needs yeah. a Njal on the other side. And instead what yes, he has he is Kjartan... Who is just, you know, who is just escalating this at every opportunity? Who's being as petty as he can possibly be, you know that. Yeah. Um, and, and again, Butley certainly there are moments when Butley is is not uh, does not come off heroically. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think what your what what in your argument you were presenting is passivity. To me, reads as introversion. I really do think that Butley comes across as a figure who does not seek the spotlight and is not comfortable when he has it. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the mo- moments when uh, when Kjartan, for example, says, you know, I don't understand why you're not being bold here. Mm-hmm. It's because bold is what Kjartan does uh, for yeah. better and for worse. Bold is what Kjartan does. Boltley is a quiet, reasoned, measured person. And the result of that is that he lives a life that is less flashy, less flamboyant, less celebrated than Kjartan's, mm-hmm. but also... One, I think, in the long run, in which he is perhaps slightly more of an adult than Kjartan is. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure, but uh, I, I'm not sure I fully agree with that. But I, I like a lot of your points. Mm-hmm. I pulled this quote from an article called Vengeance and Male Devotion in Laxdaler Saga and Njal Saga by Ian Fels. Um, I just want to share this this quote with you because I think it really captures nicely what the author might be playing at with mm-hmm. Kjartan and Boltley as contrasting figures who make really important decisions at this single moment, this mm-hmm. moment of Kjartan's death. He writes, Boltley's oscillation makes visible the scene's central dilemma. Whether it is a greater Niedingswerk, the deed of a shameful man for a man to restore his manhood by killing his kinsmen, or to forbear vengeance for the sake of their kinship while enduring tarnished masculinity. In throwing down his weapons, Kjartan chooses forbearance at the risk of emasculation, while Boltley chooses the restitution of manliness at the cost of kinslaying. Hmm. They're both faced with, essentially here, impossible decisions, and they each make the opposite decision, both showing a development in their character. Right. Right. But for both of them, it's destructive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, isn't that the the point of this entire saga is that these are three people yes. whose growth involves making tragically bad decisions mm-hmm. about their relationships with each other uh, yeah. to the eventual destruction of, well, two of them so far. We'll see how the third mm-hmm. one turns out. 
That's right. Yeah. Uh, but no, and, that's, and again, that's great. That's a good quote. Like we said, um, I think last episode or or sometime anyway, this saga really revels in putting people in almost impossible situations. Yeah. We can understand why Boltley behaves the way that he does. We can understand why Kjartan does the things that he does, what motivates each of them. And it just, it continues to escalate and it, it puts them all in an impossible situation. Mm-hmm. And that's where the chaos and destruction really comes from. Right. I mean, it's, but it, you it, know, it, it's something we see ahead. in other medieval texts, right? The uh, Many of the tragic romances work the same way. It's clockwork, yeah. right? It, 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 that everyone is operating according to the dictates of their honor. And eventually that ratchets things up to the point where no one can act without setting off an explosion. Mm-hmm. And inevitably that explosion must come. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we've and, seen here, right? People who, who have acted in a way that seems best to them at any given moment. And inevitably it draws them into this sort of destruction. Yeah. And this is what I think uh, draws me in particular to the sagas. I think you as well. The sagas are keenly aware of the connections between generations, the echoing of mm-hmm. events through time. Mm-hmm. We, we could say a kind of a butterfly effect where mm-hmm. something small happens in the past and it echoes and reverberates through these generations and, and it dictates the kind of shaping of relationships in ways that we don't always know when we're living in the current moment. But when we reconstruct the whole story, it becomes very, very interesting to follow that chain of events. Right. I mean, we haven't brought it up in a few episodes now, but, you know, we're still following on the decisions of uh, Al the Deep-Minded right? yeah. and and the way that she seeded her family all over this region. Yeah. And now we're seeing generations on how they're starting to butt up against each other. That's right. Yeah. And so how about in the next episode, um, one of the things that we'll do is we'll retrace everyone kind of that are, that is involved in this next conflict. We'll trace them all back to their original yeah. Uh, back to that moment at the very yeah. beginning of the saga. I think that would be useful. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, that okay. was a good discussion. So, yeah. Much much nicer than our last one. Well, you know, uh, I think we're both <laughs> older and wiser. Uh, yeah, you know, we're so, just about a month older, so we, okay. we learned something. Uh, so now that we've filled Boatley's corpse with the slings and arrows of outrageous opinion, we can oh, talk nice. about the character assassination we pulled on our last episode, which featured the death <laughs> of Kjartan Olofsson. Yeah. And obviously we had our say. Uh, the important question is, what did everyone else think about Kjartan's death? Oh, yes, yes. Well, there has been some discussion on the unofficial official Saga Thing Discord. And generally speaking, I would say people are decidedly not on Kjartan's side. Hmm. I guess the people on Discord don't like the pretty boy. Hmm. Well, what a surprise. <laughs> they're all, they're well, all so good looking and intelligent themselves that they're not impressed by him. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Now, Blinky Bill Buttering says, <laughs> I, I assume Blinky Bill talks like this. I don't think I'm we need to give voices Bowley. to our, oh, our, our friends on the Discord. <laughs> well, I think the very serious Blinky Bill, uh, he says, <laughs> I'm on Team Boatley because I love an underdog. Boatley has to put up with being Kjartan's sidekick, mm-hmm. despite the author never showing us any reasons to regard Kjartan as the more badass of the two. Well, I'm not sure I agree with that, <laughs> Blinky Bill. Uh, but uh, he says, why should Boatley not ask Gotharin's hand in marriage on the slight chance that Kjartan might get bored of Princess Ingeborg and come home? That mm. is a fair point. I should have cited that in my prosecution. Now, <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure that I'm actually on Team Boatley, but that's actually a solid summation of the case. Well said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Cy Fuller says, ultimately, I don't think Kjartan is any better or worse than your average saga figure. 
Much as I enjoy the sagas themselves, the characters in them are almost all just horrible people. Wow. <laughs> Love that I, one. I mean, I, I get that. Uh, there's yeah. a reason that there's an overlap between Game of Thrones viewers and saga readers. Yeah, and of course, uh, if you just look in John's Hall of Thingmen, you'll find mostly terrible people. Oh, envy and hate are the admiration of wicked men, Andy. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, Connor, <laughs> Connor Twistskeggy says, to be honest, with Kjartan and Boltley, I am on Team Thorkel. Thorkel? Wait, do you mean Thorkel from Hoffertinder? Yes, yes. The late, <laughs> unlamented Thorkel from Hoffertinder, uh, who huh. saw the ambush about, uh, about to start and did nothing to stop it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, Connor argues... Charton and Boltley did petty BS to get back at each other and <laughs> got good people murdered. Alan Twigbelly shouldn't have to die just because two spoiled brats have the emotional intelligence of three-year-olds. Oh, <laughs> uh, fantastic. I mean, I'm not sure I totally agree about Boltley's blame here, but it, it's safe to say Connor isn't considering either one of these guys for Thingman. Well, I mean, after this episode, he might have cooled on Thorkel too. Uh, and then <laughs> finally, King in Green says... I think I'm with Team Kjartan is a himbo, and I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, Kjartan is a himbo. Very There's no nice. doubt. Uh, why do we even bother talking? Can we, just, can we just find a way to put the Discord on here and let everyone else make the arguments? <laughs> That's not really how podcasts work, John. But mm-hmm. hey, now that we've dragged Boltley over the coals, let's see mm-hmm. what everyone else thinks about him. You can weigh in on our Saga Thing Discord page where people are debating everything from osteoarchaeology to how to make a comb from antlers nice. or you can uh and, and check out the show notes i'll put the uh, link to get involved on our uh, discord page there mm-hmm. you can also check with this uh check in with us on our social media sites we are saga thing pod on twitter we are saga thing podcast on facebook slash instagram and uh you can go to wordpress.com where we are saga thing podcast at wordpress.com or something like that i it's all so <laughs> you know, much one of those some combination yeah. of those words yeah, yeah. We also have an email address, sagathingpodcast at gmail.com, where you can reach us with a longer form questions and whatnot. We get a lot of those, and I try to keep up. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you haven't heard from me yet, it's coming eventually. Right. Don't we, worry. We did, I'll, I'll, we did promise a while back to put together an episode where we would answer some questions. So we are collecting those. We are, and we, but we really just want to get through Lockstyle Saga, don't yeah. we? Just Let's just finish it up. We're so close. So uh, uh, if none of the other methods of reaching out to us works, uh, why not try sending a singing telegram? I've, I've never gotten one. I, I don't even know if I've seen one in a movie since uh, Jane Wheedlin and Clue. Uh, there is one in uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I think Clue comes after that, isn't it? Which one I'm comes first? Sure. Well, jump on the Discord the page. Ferris or the Clue. <laughs> let us know. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. We are going to be back soon with what we're hoping will be the penultimate episode of Lockstyler Saga. It should be a long one because there's mm-hmm. a lot going on. <clears throat> Who's going to live? Who's going to die? And who are these young boys? Yeah. And who knew this saga would still be going on? Oh, I definitely did. I knew (laughs) when we proposed it the first time, it was going to take a while. But uh, yeah. All right. Until next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Welcome to Saga Thing. My name's Andy. That's my friend John. We're going to be talking to you tonight about Lex Della Saga.
I mean, hot doors, hot doors, hot doors, just hot doors. Hot doors 